Welcome to An Elephant for Breakfast with weekly podcasts that are meant to help folks find new perspectives, bright spots, some happiness, with a little humor here and there, in what often feels like a chaotic world. Hey, I'm Bob Jones. These broadcasts are based on my bi-weekly column at chaplainusa.org. You can find me there on pages called Robert Jones Journal, but sometimes the podcast will meander away from what I've published there into, well, let's just say other areas. On this Martin Luther King Day, January 20th, 2020, I wanted to share my reflections from the Civil Rights Museum's MLK 50 celebration back in 2018. Memphis is a city which is trying to change. The history of racism and the assassination of Dr. King are being reframed through community projects, programs, and by deep listening. We can transform personal prejudice bias and racism too. The special podcast today is about my own journey and awakenings. There is language in it that is offensive and description of behaviors that should be heard through the context of time. It would be wrong to sanitize it. I wrote this piece for chaplainusa.org from Memphis during the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. My visit to the Lorraine Motel and Mason Temple on April 4th was such a moving experience. It led me to rethink prejudice, racism, and all that separates us from one another. Though progress has been made in narrowing the gap between the privileged and marginalized, it remains wide. Discrimination based on race, sex, age, religion, national origin, and sexual orientation exists as surely today as ever. We see it or hear about it daily. In Memphis, the CEO of United Way reported on February 27, 2018, that the median income of African Americans is still 50% that of whites. Despite our increased high school graduation and college degree rates, and what is consistent across other socioeconomic indices, We're still stuck. We're still stuck indeed. Each of us is biased and possesses some degree of prejudice. Jean Vanier, a philosopher and the founder of two major international community-based organizations, L'Arche and Faith and Light, that exist for people with intellectual disabilities, teaches that fear is the basis for prejudice. He asserts that we are all frightened of those who are different, those who challenge our authority, our certitudes, and our value system. We are all so frightened of losing what is important for us, the things that give us life, security, and status in society. We are frightened of change, and I suspect we are even more frightened of our own hearts. My own roots of prejudice and discovery of redemption might be of some help to others. The most important thing to gain from this is that anyone can change. I have found that such conversion is unlikely unless there's a spiritual awakening from self-examination and deep soul-searching. As the AA people put it in the second step of their program of recovery, we came to believe that a 
power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The earliest memories I have of African-American people surround several women and men who served as caterers for my parents' elegant dinner parties. When I asked my mother why they were all black, she responded that the family had colored servants for generations. Her ancestors had freed their slaves in Kentucky when they decided to migrate to Illinois in 1829. One of them, a pregnant girl named Polly, followed on foot behind their covered wagons into the free state. She was not allowed to cross the border in the wagon due to federal law. Aunt Paul, as she became known, and her family acted as our servants and nannies for years to come. In fact, her grandson, Frank Neal, and his wife, Florence, were among the caterers I knew and loved. So, my first impression was that African Americans were family members. It troubled me, even as a little boy, that we had once been owners of slaves. I decided to pay attention to family members and other trusted adults as they talked about and interacted with black people. My observations were puzzling. It was forbidden to use the N-word in our home, but when Mother gave Florence Neal a ride home from a party, she told me she was taking her to nigger town. When we saw black children and their parents, she referred to them as pickaninnies. Mom wasn't the only one who gave me mixed messages, but hers were the words that stuck with me. In my mind, there was clearly a disparity between what the adults said they believed and how they behaved. Media helped to shape my attitudes and those of most kids. There was no internet, of course, but there were other means that guided our thinking just as much as Facebook does today. Children's books like Little Black Sambo, which portrayed the character as a stereotype pickaninny, was quite hurtful to black children. The Bobsy Twins in the Land of Cotton portrayed cotton-picking laborers in this way. Negroes, both men and women, were gaily dressed in bright-colored skirts or sunbonnets and aprons. Most of them were singing. They must like their work, said Nan. They seem so happy. Cotton-picking is a healthful exercise replied the plantation owner. Several recording artists like Al Jolson, who wore blackface and sang as minstrels, depicted a negative stereotype of African Americans. Ralph David Abernathy talked about those stereotypes as black people scratching where they didn't itch and laughing when they're not tickled. Amos and Andy was a hugely popular radio show whose characters were voiced by two white men portraying black men. Later, a television show of the same name appeared with colored actors. Bishop W.J. Walls of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church wrote an article sharply denouncing Amos and Andy, singling out the lower-class characterizations as the crude, repetitious, and moronic dialogue. These were only a few of my boyhood influences. I discovered early on that people loved the way I mimicked and imitated voices. It wasn't long before my jokes turned on black people, Polish people, and others who were easy, and I found socially acceptable targets. My popularity among friends and family grew dramatically 
as I acted out my characterizations. It all seemed harmless enough. Little did I suspect that my antics were affecting people in lasting ways. I was a privileged white boy who was leveraging my position at the expense of those who were suffering injustice and discrimination. I could feel this in my stomach, but the approval and laughter I created only increased the frequency of my bad behavior. The origins of prejudice can almost always be traced to childhood experiences and to beliefs taught by parents and other adults. Between the ages of three and six, kids begin to understand prejudice and to apply stereotypes. We're not prejudiced because we're evil, but because we're human and it's easy to fall into. The infrastructure of our prejudice is not moral depravity, but our regular thinking mechanism that just went wrong. It's taken a series of aha moments and tragic events, studies, workshops, and close work with marginalized people to create my conversion and transformation process, which continues to this day. The first such experience happened in 1958 when I was seven years old. My parents spent winters with my grandparents in South Florida near Pompano Beach. I loved going there and considered it my second home. On this trip, there was a special treat. The state of Florida had just opened the Sunshine State Parkway. It was a divided tollway, and you could cruise along at speeds and make time unheard of on two-lane roads from Danville to Pompano. To top it all off, there were full-service rest areas with free orange juice and a restaurant. We stopped at the first one we saw. The booths at the restaurant had a little jukebox you could pick songs you liked for a nickel. We were all quite impressed. I'll never forget what happened next. I had to go to the bathroom, and my folks decided I was old enough to go on my own. I confidently strode to the facilities, only to be met by signs that baffled me. The restrooms were marked for use by race. They were labeled white men and colored men, white women and colored women. Water fountains were also separated, white and colored. What was I supposed to do? I pondered for a moment and then chose the colored bathroom, thinking that people in there had to be more interesting. Purple, red, orange? I went inside and started to approach a urinal when a black man took me by the hand and asked to take me back to my parents. I protested that I had to go, but he persisted and led me to our booth. The man told my parents that the little master was going to use the colored bathroom. We could all get in a lot of trouble. Dad apologized and took me to the white-only boys' room. I was indignant. It took lots of rather clumsy explanations for me to finally be told to accept things that were different in the South and to shut up. I never forgot to look at the man. I never forgot the look on the man's face who saved us from trouble. There was something terribly wrong. There were other influences over the years. My friend Jack Lord from Pompano introduced me to books by Martin Luther King, President Kennedy's Profile in Courage, and one about Gandhi. Each made big impressions on my thinking, and certainly not a reading list that my conservative Republican parents endorsed, but they allowed me to delve into them anyway. The next event that shook up my conscience happened in 1967. 
I was 16 and a sophomore at Pinecrest School in Fort Lauderdale. One weekend, I was invited to a friend's house in Pahokee, Florida. Any excuse to get out of the dorm was welcome. Several of the dorm kids were from Pahokee, and it sounded like a great time to me. On Sunday, I was expected to attend a church service with my host family at the First Baptist Church. One of my friend's dads was a deacon at the church and met us at the door to chat about football prior to the services. As we were talking, an African-American couple from out of town began walking up the steps to the sanctuary. The dad excused himself, went into the vestibule, and returned with a shotgun. You must be in the wrong place. The nigger church is down the street. The frightened folks made a hasty retreat. I was so angry that I couldn't find words for hours. I just sat there in the car all the way back to Fort Lauderdale with hot tears in my eyes. I finally decided that I would never be silent about something like that ever again. On April 4th, 1968, I was in a night study hall at Pinecrest when the teacher in charge, Mr. Ed Sickman, called for our attention and told us that Senator Robert Kennedy announced in Indianapolis that Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated in Memphis. We were devastated. How could such a thing happen in our country? King's words kept playing in my head. I felt the power of God transforming the fatigue of despair into the buoyancy of hope. I am convinced that the universe is under the control of a loving purpose, and that in the struggle for righteousness, man has a cosmic companionship. Was he wrong? Had we sunk to such a level as people that hope was gone? How could God let this happen? My heart was broken. That was undeniable. Then, a few short weeks later, Senator Kennedy was killed. My inner transformation was in full swing. I began to question everything about my beliefs. Like any conversion, the process was not linear. I'm ashamed to admit that I wore blackface at a school popularity contest and even pledged Kappa Alpha Order during that time. My penchant for racially insensitive and mean joke-telling continued on for years. Even though my heart was changed, I guess maybe my mind wasn't. The guilt I experienced was not enough to stop my comments to others, which might have influenced or reinforced their own prejudices. It is said that one has to really want to change for it to happen, and I believe that this is true. Certainly, the pivotal events I described were an impetus for my change, but there's more to it than that. I spent much of my life helping kids who suffered the most terrible trauma and adults who struggled with addictions as a result of horrific childhood experiences. They were of every race, religion, sexual orientation, social background, and on and on. They have been my teachers. More than all of my college African-American studies, workshops, retreats, and community leadership gatherings about prejudice and racism. My patients are the ones who led me to the spiritual truth that we are all unique, but conversely, all the same. It took years for me to reach a place where my bias does not seem to affect my behavior directly, but I still have to be on guard. 
Old demons can still raise their pointy heads. The process of conversion and transformation is well told in the life of George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, who infamously preached, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. He was feared and reviled, but celebrated by many as well. Then something happened which turned him around and transformed not only his own life, but the lives of others as well. George Wallace was shot in 1972 by a would-be assassin. He recalled as he lay on his back, blood pooling on the ground. A light came into his heart, and as his son later remarked, this was his first step on the road to Damascus. Wallace poured himself into Bible study, found a new faith system that did not allow discrimination and hatred. He asked his former enemies for forgiveness. Congressman John Lewis, for one, offered it to him, saying, George Wallace should be remembered for his capacity to change. Telling your own story and listening to the fears of others to whom we minister are critical elements in the work that we do to help people find their way. This involves self-examination and seeking to find the roots of prejudices. There are also some excellent tools available that would help create dialogue and build bridges between study groups. Among them is Sojourner's study guide and book by Jim Wallace called America's Original Sin. I've used them in my work over the years and find them to be extremely helpful to participants in exploring belief systems and in building community. There's also a virtual learning series called Racial Equity and Liberation, which is quite valuable and easy to access on Google. The time for action is now. Clara Hanrahan, the social activist, offers us this formidable warning. Like the deadly currents in the Mississippi River, racism still lurks about even when much of the surface seems calm. Today, its poisons are rising again like a deadly fog off the surface of deep and troubled waters. Here is the truth. Fear of others is the fundamental emotion that guides prejudice and discrimination. It always searches for a scapegoat. When we develop a desire to change through the intervention of a power greater than ourselves, a realization begins to take hold. As one of my patients used to repeat over and over to me, I'm not in charge, it's a God thing. We will realize that all of us are fundamentally the same, no matter what our age, gender, race, culture, religion, limits, or disabilities may be. We all have vulnerable hearts and need to be loved and appreciated. We belong to a common humanity. As we begin to listen and really hear each other's stories, things begin to change, and everyone involved is transformed. This broadcast hasn't been easy for me. Exposing my prejudices and telling my story through that lens is painful. But all change comes through exploring our wounds. Hopefully, someone will find a way to greater acceptance of others after listening. I offer it to you with that hope. I'll find you in the morning sun and when the night 